Welcome to Householders, a conversation about American life as Zen practice. I'm Inga Annie Wade. And I'm Kyosaku John Mitchell, and we're lay members of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center. I feel like householder is a derogatory term in a lot of early Buddhist literature. Like, how familiar with the term were you when I proposed that we call the show that? I didn't relate it to Zen. I see. I didn't know how it related to Zen. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I guess in the fact that we're lay practitioners, but I didn't know how if p- other people had talked about it. Well, so the reason I wanted to use it is because in the sort of in the sutras, it's kind of the opposite of monk. I'm talking about the Pali canon and like the, the sort of very formal early Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Householders are people who don't get it because they're not. Yeah, they don't practice. Yeah. And so there have been so many revolutions in the history of Buddhism about bringing in lay people. And, and by the time Zen made it to us, to our generation or even the generation of our teacher, it was a pretty normal idea that people with jobs and families and lives and stuff would practice Zen. Mm-hmm. But it still feels like a very un solved problem to me about how exactly it works uh because i think that the generation before us really like this actually i mean maybe this is two generations before us the people who are doing who, the people who were in their 30s in the in the 60s and 70s who were doing hardcore zen practice in america for the first time the the as i understand it from talking to people and from reading about it the vibe was really like Zen and your family are in conflict with each other. Like in order to do Zen in that, in those days and in those lineages, you had to sit, you had to do long retreats all the time. You had to sit for hours a day Mm -hmm. and people used it as a form of almost escape from their householder responsibilities. Yeah. I mean, even Siddhartha, when you think about it. That's a good point. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he left his wife and family uh, and his duties. Right. And that's that's the sense in which the word householder is used in a pejorative sense in the early Buddhist scriptures. And and like sort of the nicest it ever gets about it that I I mean, I obviously there are counterexamples and there's whole like sutras about how wonderful householders are. You know, like pe- people have realized this many times throughout Buddhist history and have tried to come up with ways for people who aren't monks to to practice the Dharma. But there are so many instances in classical buddhist text where it's like even a householder can understand that you know (laughs) this practice is important or this practice works or does this or that uh you know they're seen as sort of like half buddhists by a certain kind of monastic flavor of buddhism and obviously you know the vast 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 majority of buddhists ever have have been householders but you know there's still there's still this sort of worship of the monk ideal as well it seems like you could reach nirvana faster if you're just meditating more exactly right yes faster yes you get you get you attain the thing that you somehow don't have if you work on it more the thing that you're not supposed to want to attain (laughs) right exactly but 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 the the reason i wanted to do this whole investigation of the idea of householders is that you know zen teaches in so many ways how everyday life is practice and that practice and everyday life are continuous with each other. And I put I put those teachings together with something I might have said on the show already. I can't remember that Sensei said right when my 
second daughter was about to be born. He said, that baby's going to be your Zen teacher now. Yes. And, you know, I thought he was just sort of saying that. And maybe to him, he was just saying that. But what I realized immediately is that since I was primed to see it that way, I was I was doing so much more intensive practice in the situations where it was stressful, you know, handling household or stuff. I mean, specifically like situations where the baby's freaking out and I don't know what to do. Like that practice is so much more intense Oh yeah. than my sitting practice, which has become a sort of relaxing thing, as I mentioned. As, as, as serious as I am about it, as rigorous as I do it, you know, there's nothing like a crying baby to show you like the true nature of what we are and 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 teach you how to be with it absolutely and and so so now my whole my whole shtick is like domesticity is the new monasticism like this is monastic the way that i had i have to be so on as a dad of little kids and taking care of a house you know all the time and like balancing work with it and balancing personal practice and development and creativity and leisure and all that stuff balancing it all like there's so much to do yeah and it has to all be zen practice and so i'm not saying that it's the same as it being a monk but i'm saying that it is that there's it's certainly just as hard sometimes harder i mean it's yeah constantly being put to the test whether we can you know retain our buddha nature while in these tough situations and i don't know what kind of tough situations uh monks are in. they have to sit for long periods of time and that is very tough but then there's also like cleaning and cooking yes crying babies are not things that that monks have to deal with but they but you know cleaning and cooking as this like refined zen practice you know that's what i'm doing half the time oh yeah And, and it's it's no different and so you know somebody's doing that in the house and usually they're doing it so that somebody else can do something else and it's all it's all just about keeping the keeping the place running and that's what monastic work is too they got to keep they have a monastery to keep running so i think it's the same thing you know i don't i don't want to get into whether one is harder than the other but yeah. like what hard hard is the point i think is what i fundamentally want to say is like life is hard and zen is for practicing doing things that are hard absolutely so like what's hard for you about day-to-day life and and how is it zen practice you know you're saying that your children are probably uh some of your biggest zen teachers Mm -hmm. and for me it's just uh my disability Mm -hmm. that has made me the the most mindful of my existence uh i was diagnosed with lupus at uh 22 and i've been i had been sick like a long time before that it just took that long to actually get the diagnosis mm-hmm. and I was already very very sick by that point and it, I ended up in the hospital for 10 days and to the point where I was like slowly dying and they were like mm-hmm. if you hadn't made it to the hospital you would have had like three months to live probably oh my god um so you know as a 22 year old I think during that time you're really all about wanting to uh party and you know experience life and like a kind of a rigorous uh, uh a more i don't know risky way and mm-hmm. i kind of never got to do that mm. <laughs> i always had to be like at that point i'm like how am i going to get better uh because i don't think i can do everything that other people my age can and i still can't um but it turns out that this is a pretty good existence too 
when you can turn it into a, a Zen practice. <laughs> so regular everyday life, like I, I did eventually sort of get better with, from lupus. It's not in complete remission. It's just, it was just a, such a def- severe form that I don't think it ever will go into remission. Mm. Um, but it's good enough. And from that, I also had another illness uh, where I have several bones in my body that are dead and mm. they cause me a lot of pain uh, every day. Mm. Um, there were times where I was using a wheelchair and I would go into the Zendo with with crutches because um, that's what I thought I was supposed to do. But eventually I learned how to manage the pain and, and Zen had a, a huge impact on me being able to do that. Mm. So when you have like the Zen practice, it's made me so much more like mindful of like what causes me pain and how much I can control or how much I can handle, how much uh, physical activity I can handle, how much like emotional uh, stress I can handle because emotional stress can cause pain too. Mm -hmm. Uh, People don't really think about it that way. But if you're under stress, like, and you have a condition that causes like that inflammation can cause pain in your body, it will get worse the more stress you're under. Mm -hmm. So I'm always con constantly on alert for like how much stress I'm under if I'm eating correctly did I get enough sleep you know am I balancing my mental health correctly and always being aware of that I feel like is has been my biggest zen teacher because I have to work so hard just to be close to what everybody else feels like regularly Mm. This isn't a very Zen word to use, but I sound, it sounds like there's a lot of mindfulness practice involved in managing this. Is, yeah. Is, like, and you use the word awareness. I think that when you're practicing Zen med- meditation, you become aware of uh, what's going on in your body and with your emotions and with your surroundings more than you are on, you know, in your regular everyday life uh, because you are finally stopping and actually feeling what's going on. And I think that there's a lot of people who actually have illnesses that they don't know about because they keep themselves busy so much and keep their mind distracted that they are not aware of it. Mm -hmm. And if you become aware of it, it becomes easier to help yourself with it, help, help to balance it, help to balance your life. And it's it's very difficult because it just takes so much of of your headspace. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's what I mean by awareness. Yeah, that's thank you. Surely these surely your pain or your difficulties are coming up for you in various episodes throughout the day, like some specific thing you have to do or, yeah. you know, like it, or, or it just comes up and it's, and it, and it, you know, interrupts whatever's happening. Cause I can imagine, you know, having trouble moving around like that as an example would create like an obstacle course of stuff that has to happen. Like, like getting the laundry isn't just going yeah. and getting the laundry. There's like this whole maze of things you probably have to do. Exactly. Thank you. That's uh, just saying that like makes me feel validated. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to explain to people that yes, just, just doing the laundry is a big deal. 
Mm-hmm. And I want I want so bad to be like everybody else. So not really. I just mean like I want to be able to do the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to do those things, just it requires so much uh, thought and so much patience that uh, it comes back so much. So like cooking, I, I cook three times a, a week probably. If you don't count lunch, because I, I make these little like sautés in a bag things you can get at Kroger, hmm. which are great. It's not so it's not even just the cooking that I know is going to take like physical exertion and energy to do. But I also have to do it because I need to be in charge of what's going in my body because I know that that will affect how I feel. Mm-hmm. So I just every time I do something throughout the day, if I don't do it with that sort of zen mind then i kind of risk getting off balance in some kind of way so there's like a zen preparation for doing the thing too it's not it's not just like an in the middle of it it's like you have to kind of center yourself before you go into that situation i think that i have to think about it right i have to kind of center myself before i do it and then while you're doing it yeah you also have to be mindful because you might need to take I might need to take a break. I need yeah. might need to stop chopping because actually one of the dead bones is in my wrist. So like cooking can be very difficult because of the chopping. You know, if you're not aware, you can... If I'm not aware, I know I say it like you, like I'm sure there's other people <laughs> like me. So I guess that's why I'm saying it like that. Yeah. Like yeah. you as in the people with disabilities or physical ailments of any kind or emotional ailments have to be aware of what you're doing at all times. And if you're, and if you're not then you could injure yourself in some way, form or another. <laughs> when you do dedicated Zen practice, Zazen practice or, or any, any of the Zen forms, does it ever get difficult to approach the pain or this, this ongoing challenge from that place of stopping and dropping everything? Like, do you ever want it I could imagine just sit, sitting in Zazen and just not wanting it to be there, but it's there. Is that yeah. ever a thing for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and Sensei is great about like allowing me to use chairs. Hmm. Uh, again, so the, the, Z, the dead bone thing is really hard for me to explain. It sounds like I just made it up. But anyway, <laughs> it's called avascular necrosis. Um, and I don't really know how I got it exactly. Could because lupus, could because I was on a lot of... Um, steroids for like five or six years uh, to, to fix the lupus. They don't really know, uh, but it's very widespread and my knees are the, the biggest area that it has most of the dead bone, which what I mean by dead bone is like there's not circulation in that bone area. Mm, so mm-hmm. uh, I guess the, the bone's still there. It's not like doing anything besides just hurting a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I sit cross-legged, especially for long periods of time, that can be very painful and on one hand, I have to think, am I hurting myself? Am I making this worse? Or is this a part of practice? Mm. So sometimes I decide, no, I need to go sit in a chair. I don't want to hurt my my knees anymore. Um, and sometimes I can sit cross-legged and it's not a big problem. I think that's one of the most important kinds of physical discernment in Zen practice for anyone you know, the knees are always the thing that goes for anybody who yeah. does Zen practice. And and I think one of the things that's often taught and surely taught in a very 
un- unintentionally maybe, but nevertheless ableist way about that pain is is that the teacher will often say this it's your responsibility to sit with that pain and use discernment to figure out whether it's just resistance to feeling pain or whether it's an actual warning that something is something is is not right and your body should be adjusted and you know the, the zen admonition is often just don't move yeah and that could be kind of embarrassing for me because i feel like my threshold of how long I can stay without moving is probably a little smaller than most people's, unless yeah. you do also have a knee problem or a hip problem or something, and then maybe you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, and I, but I, I still have like, so I, I, I've had my periods of time of really having trouble sitting in the yeah. posture on retreat, and um, having to learn lessons about being compassionate with my body. And it has really been teachers' jobs to, uh, well, it hasn't been their job, but the teachers have been the ones who showed me where I was being too severe or not, uh, you know, or using some mental construct of needing to do something instead of listening to my body. Uh, and, you know, it, it, uh, some of it, some of the f- pressure I felt also had to do with conformity. I felt like mm-hmm. I had to be sitting like everyone else. I'm sure that is extra hard for you, but it sounds like Sensei also makes the space uh, accommodate that for you in a way that helps. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's what it is. What you were saying, compassion is the perfect word for it, and I think mm-hmm. Sensei is compassionate about. You know, there's a lot of. Uh, elderly people that go to the zendo too yeah and i think you have to acknowledge that not everybody's you know uh, a young healthy person mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and i have to acknowledge that about myself too and be compassionate like you said be compassionate to yourself and i think you can your zen practice can really teach you how to be compassionate to yourself and others it sounds like there's a zen teach and a non-human zen teacher in there teaching you lessons somewhere yes it probably is too cute to say like your pain is your teacher or something well pain sounds like a mean thing i don't i don't Mm -hmm. think that my body's trying to do anything mean to me in Mm -hmm. a way like you know when you become compassionate towards your your body then you cannot like you learn not to blame it for being in pain in the first place Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't know. Pain is sort of like a, a negative connotation, but I, I don't think that it, it has to be. Sometimes I, I think of it a lot like cold or hot. I hate being cold. Hmm. It's really uncomfortable. Also, that makes my joints hurt too. But <laughs> even if it didn't, it's just the, the act of being cold is very uncomfortable. But in, in I guess it could be so cold that you're painful, maybe not in Georgia, but uh, <laughs> in some places you could it could be painful. But just really you think about it as uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe if we can, you know, re realign our mind to not think of pain as a bad thing in the first place, mm. or at least not or just it is what it is. It's it's an alarm of some sort. It's trying to tell you something mm-hmm. and we can listen to that and maybe not you know, take it to the degree where we are uh, letting it rule everything that we do, because that's not good either. If if I let it do that, then I wouldn't exercise. And actually exercising has made my, um, my muscles stronger where I can handle the pain more. Hmm. 
at least that's what Zen has taught me and what having the pain in the first place has taught me is learning the signs and when I need to exercise and when I need to rest and when I need to sit and when I need to stop sitting. Mm. I mean, that sounds like the stuff that's in all the ancient Zen stories. Like, you know, some monk says, what is enlightenment? And the teacher says, when when it hurts, stop doing it. And when it feels good, keep doing it. And when you're hungry, eat something. And when you're cold, put a blanket on. That This is, this is kind of what I meant about the householder thing is there's there's a there's a teacher and a student in each of us and they both know what to do yeah it's it's just it's it's when they're not talking to each other that it feels like we don't know what to do yeah oh well let's talk about your teachers Hmm. my teachers are all are largely outside of me (laughs) these days (laughs) uh and and it's really been an accelerator of my practice to have such chaos in my life and that is that has been the thing that's been most surprising to me about having any kids but especially two kids is like the more crazy things have gotten the more the more uh I, I'm hesitant to use the word progress, but the but I but I uh, maybe I maybe it is fair to say the better I feel I'm doing, and I mean that in sort of a health way, like be- better or worse, not in terms of improvement or getting or or you know some kind of performance, but 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 actually like healthier or or less healthy. I feel like maybe the times that I've tried to sort of have a monastic solitary existence early in my twenties and meditate all the time and do nothing but concentrate on my spiritual development have been some of the least healthy times. Oh, really? And and this is the most, uh, only because there's so much more to consider than just myself and what, what, what's happening to me. Well, what, what's the difference? Like what, when you're focusing on yourself as opposed to, uh, your wife and children what what happens i do have this very long solitary sit and in the mornings that's my time to myself mm-hmm. and and i i've set it up that way kind of because it's the only time i can control in a day uh in this house is when everyone's asleep and so i take that time to sort of f- prepare myself and actually the more the longer, the more the months go by, the more I realize that I'm really physically preparing myself more than mentally preparing myself. It's not like the situation gets any more clear to me in any kind of rational or intellectual way or or that I that or that my what I'm gonna do, how I'm gonna do it. I don't decide like I'm gonna be a good dad today in the course <laughs> of that time. It's really that I'm like getting my body breathing proper in the proper Zen manner. And then the muscle memory of that is what propels me through the day. And also what completely consists of the Zen practice of doing all the other stuff is that the, the breath is really there for me. Uh, and I, it's because I establish it at that time in the morning. And so the difference between that and what I was doing when I was 
or in my early 20s kind of first learning to meditate is that I thought the meditation was the end goal of what I was doing at the time. It's like the more I meditate, the more I meditate. And so obviously the more I meditate, the more of a meditator I am <laughs> or something something like that. And and that's there's still so many eyes in that yeah. in the, in that way of thinking. There's so much me focus whereas this time is like this morning time that I sit before my family wakes up. I mean, it counts, you know, the buzzword, it would be self-care. Like, yes, there is a self-care aspect to this practice that I'm doing, but it's not just that I'm caring for my, for myself as an isolated being. I'm taking care of my family in advance, you know? Yeah. And, and myself is not just this body and this perspective. Once they come downstairs, it's, it's, all of us now myself is my house myself is is everything that has to happen today and i'm i'm part of that action and inseparable from it and it's it is a kind of transcendence of myself in a but it but it's it transcendence in a very ordinary way it's not it's not some kind of like mind blowing enlightenment experience it's just that being myself is uh, is inseparable from doing the stuff and that is uh or or even being with the person you know being with one kid at a time or both kids at a time when my wife's doing something or being with all th- all four of us together or as rare as it is these days being together with my wife for the 12 seconds that we get to be in each other's presence alone a day until bedtime and and that feels like so much more of an expansive self and it's all tied together by this by this ability to breathe and keep practicing so you know it's it's true on some level that that this my family are my den teachers but it's also true on a very real level that they are that they are me that they're my practice mm-hmm. and 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 I'm practicing in their presence uh I pra- I'm practicing as their presence I'm practicing as presence with them and so it's not it doesn't always obviously just like in any sitting practice thoughts are arising all day long of like I hate this <laughs> you know like this is terrible I feel very bad I want this to stop it, but it's not it's not the same as as pain in my legs you know let alone pain in your legs i mean it's 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 not something first of all that i can fix by adjusting it's i mean that, i know it's not that's not entirely true actually i guess like changes to the schedule asking for help that's how you change it uh if it's not working but but it requires the and, and actually yeah i guess it requires the same kind of compassion for yourself to not just be like tortured washing dishes <laughs> But to to ask for help, it's hard to ask a two year old for help. But I do it all day. I ask her to help me, and you know I I hope that what I'm teaching her is that it's okay to ask for help. Yeah. Not not so much that like I need her to do stuff. Right, right. Not chores, but like that you're helping people. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So that sounds like it's working for me if i if i'm already having this sort of relationship to it where you know taking care of each other is why we're doing things i don't know 
maybe I should be more concrete about like what's actually happening. Like there's so, there's so much, you know, there's so, well, there's so many rituals. This is one of the interesting things. It's maybe not surprising given that, you know, we both, that we come from a culture that has lots of little rituals, kind of lots of little householder rituals for everyday things, you know. There's blessings, Jewish blessings for washing your hands. There's Jewish blessings for going to the bathroom. Every bite of food has kind of its own different blessing. You say different blessings over the food, depending on what kind of food you're eating. You say blessing after you eat food. You know, it's, I mean, we don't, we don't have a super rigorous practice like this, but there are all these little mindful ritual ways of living that we, that we've practiced before. And that, and, and it, it, maybe it's not surprising that they, that we've come up with our own in our family. But this might also just be how it is that like a two-year-old needs a certain structure and a four-month-old also needs a certain structure. And so there are all these passages through time to wake up, time to get out of bed, time to get dressed, time to brush your mm-hmm. teeth, time to pick out your clothes. And and each one of these can be viewed as a challenge, you know, as like some as like a hoop to jump through or or a battle to fight even sometimes. But there's also a quality to them that's just like minutes in Zazen. It's like you have to get through one minute to get through the next minute to get through the next minute. You know, like that's all that all the minutes are is just like gates for the present moment to pass through. And so it has this rhythm and this structure that's known. And it also breaks out of the structure all the time because one of us, whether it's a kid or an adult, can't or won't hold the structure together and you know something needs to be brought back in the presence needs to be gathered back up so that we can continue through the through the gates of the day and it feels like a team sometimes but it also feels like almost one entity sometimes it's just it's just like the temperature and that's 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 definitely also true when things are going wrong you know, like when somebody's losing their mind, everybody's going to lose their mind yeah. pretty quickly. And so it has this sort of group mind quality to it. And the best you can do is bring your own calm and presence to the situation. And it works in ways that are almost hard to explain sometimes. I mean, like, why does my baby daughter who doesn't understand anything I'm saying to her calm down when I when I am calm and even if I look calm, but I'm not calm inside, she doesn't, you know, like what, like how, like there, how, what level is this communication happening on? And the longer, the more it works, the less I try to explain it because it's, it's that ineffable Zen thing where the teacher and the student and all of us know what to do. I mean, sometimes I think that, you know, you, you have this actual relationship with, uh, you know, you're, your child that if you get upset then she might get upset or if you're calm she might get calm and i think that it's kind of the same inwardly too Mm. or Mm -hmm. we're kind of like we can kind of affect our own feelings by how we react to things and and i see that with my husband too if you know if one of us is upset there it is going to be more likely that the other person's upset and i never thought about that as like a family thing but of course that it happens in the exact same way so you just have more people who who are reflecting each other's emotions back at each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I definitely learned even from the when the kids were well from the baby who's still a baby and from the 2-year-old who was a baby not that long ago, I 
emotions don't really change in a way that there's like kid emotions and adult emotions. You know, the 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 thing that's hard about communicating with the two-year-old is the mismatch between her language or thinking and her emotions. Mm-hmm. But there was a sense in which it was almost easier to communicate with her when she was one than when she's two. Because, because she knew less words. Yeah. And and she 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 didn't try to explain what was happening. She yeah. just she just showed us. And you know, I think we adults, I mean, it's I think it's good that you brought up, you know, marital relationships as a Zen practice in brought that into this conversation too. I think we screw that up for each other all the time by talking when we should be feeling or thinking when we should be feeling. I mean, I'm speaking about me and my wife and I don't want to make it sound like it's universal, but we both do it. You know, we both, we both try to use words to tell each other what's happening when clearly there's something else happening. That is that that's something that, that even of, that happens to a four-month-old and that we see, you know, we see the four-month-old going through all the time and we figure out intuitively what to do. But we don't give ourselves the opportunity to do that with each other because because the, the person who's upset uses comes up with some complicated explanation yeah. that you have to solve as a intellectual puzzle of some kind. That is that is true. And I'm I'm the the person in the relationship that's always trying to solve it like an, an intellectual puzzle like you have to you know you have to find the source and then you have to find a way to fix that thing and you know sometimes you are just hungry <laughs> <laughs> Householders is a production of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center in Atlanta Georgia and the Silent Thunder Order find us on the web at aszc.org our sangha depends on your support you can donate by PayPal to donate at storder.org. Gasho.